Kia ora. Welcome to this edition of the Morrisville Baptist Church Podcast. Thank you for connecting with us to discover more about our faith community. Feel free to visit our website at morrisvillebaptist.com. I hope this message is an encouragement to you. Okay, well, good morning everybody. I think this is the earliest I've ever been to church. Um, but, um, when I was a kid, we used to start at 9.30, but 9 o'clock is different. <coughs> but you are all not different. It's great to see you all in the, in the flesh again. <coughs> this morning um, we're continuing with Matthew, our series of Matthew, and uh, it's Matthew 13, verses 24 to 52 this morning. Six parables involved. Um, and I'm going to mix the order of these parables because I believe the first parable and the last one are speaking of uh, the similar things. And likewise, the two middle ones have a similar message. So let's start, uh, and, yep, uh, let's start with um, uh, Matthew 13, verse 24, reading to verse 30. Matthew 24, verse 24 the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the wheat, uh, weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may, not, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. And then, uh, a little unusually, Jesus explains this parable, um, unusually in the sense that he didn't always explain the parables, although he did sometimes to his disciples, which he does here. So reading from verse 37. The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where, they will weep, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then, as I say, I'm going to lump together with, with those two uh, readings the last parable, which is the parable of the net, starting in verse 47. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up onto the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish into baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. <coughs> right, I'll leave it there. Okay. So it should be an easy matter for us to uh, understand this parable of the wheat and tears because Jesus interpreted it for us. But let's go some, and note some things from it. Uh, there are some common features in each of these parables. 
And the first and most obvious one is they speak, they all speak about the kingdom of heaven. Now the kingdom of heaven is synonymous with the kingdom of God. Now Matthew is the only writer who uses the term kingdom of heaven. And in simple terms, the kingdom of God is where God rules. So the kingdom of God has come in an individual when they give control of their lives over to Christ, both as part of the process of salvation uh, and as the ongoing work of being made Christ-like. Now Richard gave us a great testimony a few weeks ago, you'll remember, about that aspect of becoming Christ-like. Um, or it may be that you are a business owner and you operate your finances and your relationships with godly values. Again, then the kingdom of God has come to your workplace. So these examples are not the church, and in that sense the kingdom of God is wider than the church. But the, the church is the agent of the kingdom. The church grows and sends out those who are kingdom builders. So another common feature of these parables is that they involve a man, a field, and a planting. Four of them illustrate the devil's meddling, and two of them show us something of the work of angels. So then, let's have a closer look at the wheat and the tears. A man sows wheat into his field, it grows and begins to sprout heads. At this point, the man's workers notice a problem. The point at which the fruitfulness of the crop begins to become evident reveals that the crop is not all that it seemed to be. And there is a weed that grows in wheat crops, it's called darnel, or darnel, I've never heard the word pronounced actually. Uh, and it's likely that this is what Jesus is referring to as the tears. It's a nasty weed because it looks identical to the wheat plant until, the sh until it shoots up its fruit head. Then the difference becomes apparent. However, by now its roots have become intermingled with that of the wheat. Um, and pulling it up will waste some of the wheat crop as well. Now the man's workers report to him the problem and their puzzlement. They are sure good seed was sown. How is it that this weed has got so intermingled with the crop? The owner knows the answer. This is a deliberate act. An enemy has sabotaged the crop. He's got good workers, this owner. They have a real concern for the man's crop and they say, well, go and pull up the weeds. The owner, however, sees a bigger picture. He's got a better way in mind, one that won't damage or limit the productivity of the good wheat seed. At the point of harvest, when the difference is most evident, the separation will be made. The tears will be cut off first, gathered and burned, and then the wheat will be gathered into the owner's barn. So now the explanation that Jesus gives of this parable. Verse 37. The man who sowed the good seed is him. The field that is the seed is sown into is the world. The good seed is you and I, his true disciples. The tears, or bad seed as Jesus calls it in his explanation, are children or followers of the evil one. The enemy who sows the bad seed is the devil. In God's field, the world, the devil is active at messing up God's crop. But there's good news. There is an end to this mania. This, this ruination sown by the devil. The harvest is to come, and it is at the end of the age. And many of you will know that uh, history can be divided into ages or sometimes called dispensations. Uh, and we live in the dispensation of grace, or the church age. Um, but this uh, period of history will end. Uh, and it's to this that Jesus' parable now speaks. 
History may feel random and chaotic to many people, but it is not. Uh, you know, we just go on living our lives and say this is the way it's always going to be, don't we? Uh, we tend to. The separation is going to be done by the angels, and they will weed out of Christ's kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. That's systems and organisations as well as people. Unfortunately, it won't just be a separation where those people can go off and do their own thing to their heart's content, and you and I can get on with living life in all its fullness without the hassle and interruption of sin in the Father's kingdom. There is a destiny for the tears, and it's most unpleasant. Indeed, it's scary. There is a teaching uh, that seems to have um, gained some, uh, had some resurgence over recent years, and it's called annihilation, annihilationism. And it asserts that those are that are excluded from God's eternal kingdom will be um, vaporised, poof, you know, cease to exist. And in some ways I wish that that was so, because the alternative which Jesus is saying is going to happen is truly heartbreaking. It will be like fire, but those who are separated to that place will not be consumed. And they will be conscious because he says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I believe this will be the case because such people will be in a constant state of grief at the loss that they have now realised that they have suffered by rejecting Christ, and they cannot change their mind. They will be conscious of the bliss of heaven without ever being able to experience it. They will realise that all the things they strived for in this life actually were shadow boxing, and the reality of those things was to be found in the God that they ignored and spurned. Uh, this is actually the inevitable consequence of being created in God's image because one of the things about being created in His image is that we are created as eternal beings. And that's one reason why Christians are so concerned about the sanctity of life. Once life is created, it will never have an end. And it is, of course, our compelling driver for giving everyone the opportunity to discover that there is a way of escape from burning up in the bitter disappointment of eternal loss. It is our compelling driver for sharing the gospel, the good news that reconciliation with the man who planted good seed is not only possible, but is actually his heartfelt wish. So I believe Jesus is warning us in this parable to stop and think about the future of our lives. As with many parables, the story, the story could leave us with questions. If God knew he had an enemy, why didn't he put a fence around the field? Uh, we've got to look at the rest of Scripture for the answers to questions that might arise from the parables. The parables have a purpose, and we do well to focus on that and not get sidetracked on things that Jesus didn't intend to highlight. So now briefly, the parable of the net. Fishermen use a drag net, now a New Zealand band, uh, under these days of uh, fisheries conservation. Uh, and, and they get to the shore and it's loaded with fish. Some fish are desirable, others are called bad ones. Jesus again talks about the end of the age, and again there are angels assigned to sort out the good from the bad. Whereas Jesus now switches to say, the wicked from the righteous. In this parable he only talks about the destiny of the wicked, and again, it is a fiery furnace and a consciousness described as weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, that message, that, this message is very much the same 
Um, I'm sure you can see that. So we move on to the, uh, the next four parables. Um, and we're going to read uh, from verses uh, 31 to 33, first of all. The parable of the mustard seed and the woman and the lump of dough. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. Perhaps like many of you, I have considered Jesus' picture here being that of God's kingdom on earth starting small and growing exponentially, growing huge. It becomes a place of refuge for many, and we are included in that many. Likewise, the lump of dough grows exponentially with the addition of yeast, so the kingdom of God will grow exponentially. However, I have had cause to consider that there may be a further meaning to these parables, uh, some, and, and I'll reference uh, Wycliffe Bible Commentary and Enduring Word Commentary, consider that the context is important. I mean, we all know that's important, but in terms of this particular parable. The parable of the mustard seed again involves a man, a field, and a seed. And we know from the wheat and the tears parable that the man is God or Christ. The field is the world. And the seed is the word of God or the gospel, uh, the gospel sorry, here, the gospel of the kingdom. Okay, so far so good. But here's where the interpretation gets interesting. You see, the mustard plant uh, was a herb. The fact that it grew into a large tree is not only unusual, it's also abnormal. Especially a tree big enough to support birds roosting in it. At most it might grow into a shrub. Now, I have to note here that um, exaggeration to make a point is part of the style of uh, the communication style of the family parables. But if Jesus is wanting us to link this parable with the wheat and the tears, then the birds roosting might actually be a negative symbol. You see, in scripture, birds are often associated with the evil one. And if we go back to the beginning of the chapter, uh, in the parable of the soul, which Foster spoke on last week, it was the birds who snatched away good, God's good seed. Who does that? Who comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy? Jesus identifies the evil one in his explanation of that parable in verse 19. And there are other examples of birds as symbols of evil in Scripture, which I haven't time to go into. Um, however, some of you will already be thinking of instances where birds are a favourable picture. Jesus talks about the value of a sparrow in his father's sight, and he quotes that with God's love and care for us. And then there's the Holy Spirit described as a dove, the symbol of the Holy Spirit being a dove. So we need to look carefully at the context when birds are used as a symbol in Scripture. For us in this passage this morning, my leaning towards seeing this parable is also containing a warning in keeping with the wheat and tears is further backed up by the next one-sentence parable. Yeast is nearly always a, a negative symbol in Scripture. So if Jesus was using it here as a positive symbol of the growth of his kingdom, that would be a highly unusual departure from his use, use of yeast elsewhere. Um, just uh, the, the Old Testament um, is entire, entirely, the symbol of yeast is negative, 
Um, and Jesus himself tells us here is a few chapters over in chapter 16 to beware of the yeast of the religious leaders. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 is addressing a distressing sin in the Corinthian church and he says, Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast or without sin, in other words. So along with illustrating that his kingdom will grow exponentially, is Jesus also warning that not everything about his kingdom on earth can be taken at face value at this point in time? There is a time coming when it will be perfected, and history tells us that from small beginnings the church made astounding growth and spread all over the known world. However, from early on, it also became inhabited with false teachers, and many of Paul's writings are exposing and countering the lies of those false teachers. He knew the danger that it posed to a young church. Perhaps Jesus was warning of a time of unnatural growth with the Christianization of the West after 300 AD, which for some centuries harbored a great many corrupting influences. And the Reformation was a reaction against this very situation. And we all know of cults that end badly, that started off pretty much Bible-believing people like you and I. Jesus himself said that not everyone who called him Lord, Lord, would enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of his Father. In conclusion, I have to say that not everyone agrees that there is a warning contained in these two parables. And it has to be noted that the context around them as recorded in Mark and Luke is not the same as here in Matthew. So I leave you to make up your own mind. But I put it out there as worthy of consideration. Uh, what would the normal understanding of Jesus' hearers be to these symbols that he used? So we move on to the, uh, the next two short parables, uh, verses 44 to 46. Encouraging slant on the previous ones. 
Jesus has been warning that his kingdom, his people, his church, will undergo hardship, entanglement with the enemy of God, and the counterfeit followers of Christ will be mistaken for the real ones. And now he encourages his future real followers, those genuinely part of his great and ever-expanding kingdom. He himself, the king of the kingdom, values what he created so much that he will give absolutely everything he has to purchase it back and redeem it for himself. The king gave his life to purchase the world, the field. Furthermore, he considers your life to be a pearl so precious that he would give everything just for you as an individual. Dear brother or sister in Christ, if you feel lost in a sea of unbelieving or indifferent people, the world around you, take these two short parables to heart this morning. Stop doubting and believe that God has put a price on your life and he's paid that price in full because your value to him is inestimable. You may have all sorts of problems, hardships, a background story to your life which is tripping you up all the time. Uh, remember, pearls start from a bit of grit in the shell. Jesus knows where you've come from, but he sees you as a pearl. He sees what you can become in his ownership, and he's done everything possible to secure you as his. But will you respond to his love? More than ever, we need to take to heart the message of these two short parables, because God's enemy who sows bad seed, has positioned himself to ensnare God's people, indeed people in general, into believing that God doesn't care. That you're just an anonymous blob of cells in a meaningless world that's undergoing huge stress testing with no end in sight for the misery. <coughs> Jesus himself, a few chapters over in, the, in chapter 24, in verse 12, warned that because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most would grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. You and I have got to stand firm to the end. You've got to be reconciled to the times when your prayers aren't answered, at least not how you expected them to be. You've got to be reconciled to the times when God seems distant. You've got to be reconciled to the possibility of suffering. Yes, God protects us, and he does provide for us. But his ways are higher than our ways. If you're going to stand firm to the end, you're going to have to be able to say from your heart, I believe in the truth. I stand on the truth. God does love me and is with me despite the fact that my circumstances might suggest otherwise. Decide whether you believe what Jesus says here about you being a pearl of a measurable price is true or not. And if it is, Position your life on that foundation. Don't waver from that truth. Don't let the father of lies entangle his roots of tears around your good wheat plant, if you put it that way. And so I conclude. There may be a few listening this morning who realise that you are not really destined for the kingdom of heaven. And you realise that you are an eternal being and, and, and that as such... You don't want a forever future shut out from everything that is truly good. I can tell you that the tears can become wet 
the bad seed can become good. And it happens through the miracle of salvation in Christ. Talk to someone you know who can help you to make that transition. You'll wake up tomorrow thinking, why didn't I do this sooner? And if you're a follower of Jesus but never quite nailed this self-worth thing, decide this morning that you believe the message of the parables about the treasure and the pearl. Your worth is not within yourself. You can't go on a deeper journey within to find who you really are. Chances are you'll find a mess. I'm not actually speaking about, um, against self-examination. That's vital for us in our ongoing, ongoing discipleship. But I'm talking about our underlying, our undergirding worth that, we, that our, our lives have. The key to your worth as a person is the value the king of the kingdom puts on you. You are the treasure. You are the pearl he gave everything for. The cross tells you your worth to him and it's got nothing to do with your performance, but everything to do with surrender to the one who is the meaning of life.